Welcome, church. Welcome. Would you stand with us? Let's praise our God and King. Come on. Sing that praise. That praise be weapon that silences the enemy. That praise be weapon that conquers all anxiety.
Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're here for the first time, if you're watching in for the very first time, we want to welcome you to Groton Bible Chapel. Uh, we're going to use the next few songs to, to refocus our hearts, to refocus our minds. A lot has happened in the past week, and we want to praise our God. We just want to, to worship Him. We want to center our hearts on Him. He is worthy of our praise, always. We were created to worship Him. We were actually created to worship our God. So we sing, we raise a hallelujah to the King, regardless of circumstances. So we're gonna praise our God together.
But at the end of the day, um, we've got five people left dead in a mix of ugliness and, and violence that was on display this week in a further polarized country. And so I think it's important as Christ followers that we need to remember two things this morning as we've worshiped. One, our purpose as a body of Christ, and two, our deep need to be prayerful. Our purpose, we are image bearers of a redeemer God that sent his son into the world and subverted all power plays of his time. We are called to bring good news, the good news of the gospel, to shine light into darkness. 1 Peter 2.9 reminds us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. Peter isn't talking to the politics of his time. He's talking to the body of Christ. He's talking to the church. Our purpose to be a holy people set aside to worship and to praise a glorious God and to speak as, as the, we've received the light, to sp speak that light into darkness. We just sang it. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm, up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated, the king is alive. So we're gonna go to prayer at this time. We're gonna go to the Lord. And I just wanna ask us this morning, um, where are we resisting the message of the gospel in our own hearts? Where are we resisting the message of the gospel? That our king would come to us, that he would serve us unto death. So let's pray together, Father God, we come before you humbly as a people living in difficult, difficult and divisive times. Our hearts are weary and we're troubled by the narrative the world has been feeding us and the satanic forces that find great satisfaction in seeing chaos and despair and confusion. But you, God, are not a God of confusion. We thank you for that, we worship you for that. We remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel and it is our deep consolation and our deepest joy. Let us not give up hope. Let us be emboldened to serve more vigorously, to love more deeply, to be humble people to a watching world, to lay aside our rights for the sake of the other. The church is alive and on display right now People are watching, they're watching how we act, how we love, how we sacrificially care for each other. As a church, may we be quick to repent where we have allowed bad spiritual formation to grow or false teaching to grow or um, idolatry to take the place in the role, uh, to take place uh, in our lives, Lord, as opposed to our true identity in you. We pray for the five lives and the families, Lord, that were impacted this week. We grieve for them and we grieve for their deaths. We pray for justice and repentance, as without that there can be no peace. We pray for revival. Finally, Lord, we pray that we would see hardship as loving discipline, forging greater faithfulness in our lives and in the body of Christ. God, would you speak through Gary this morning? 
as he preaches your word into many a parched soul this morning, may we be ready to receive it. Thank you for his faithfulness and his willing to, willingness to humbly serve. Worthy is your name. You deserve all praise and glory. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. What would happen if the people of God started handling money God's ways? You work too hard to get to the end of your life and have nothing to show for it. This is my family's legacy that I'm talking about here. I've got to have a plan and be focused. That knowledge that you pass down to your kids, that is how you change a family tree. You change your life when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you have that moment where you say, I've had it. I'm not going to live like this anymore. Good morning, GBC family. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. This is Curtis Boyd and Bethany Seidel. They have uh, been coordinators for our Financial Peace University classes for the past couple of years, including this year coming up. And as you just saw, we run a multi-week class uh, dealing in financial literacy and getting out of debt through Ramsey Solutions. We have some exciting news for that today, but before we get into that, I invited them to come up and to share a little bit. We're going to start off with Curtis. How how did you end up getting involved with uh, Dave Ramsey? So I would probably say um, I started really looking at financial discipline about 30 or 35 years ago, basically with uh, a program through Larry Burkett and his, uh, he was a Christian financial planner many years ago. And basically his program at that point was if there was no cash in the envelope for that part of your budget, you didn't buy the item, no credit. And that was basically the start of Financial Discipline 101 for me many years ago. Since then, through uh, education and even my career in insurance and financial services, I've utilized that even now today through uh, Dave Ransby and Financial Peace to basically stay and remain debt-free most of my entire uh, married lives. So I would say over time, the two disciplines that we've utilized basically was financial discipline and a healthy financial diet. Um, in today's environment, uh, that's probably more important than ever before. A lot of people have kind of asked me over the last six months, you know, is financial peace, financial uh, debt or getting out of debt really a possibility in, in this environment? And I would say yes, and probably more importantly, it's uh, important today than ever before. So I've been doing this here at GBC for about the last five or six years. We've probably had five or six uh, opportunities to provide or support uh, this program and offer it to you, and I'm excited to do it again. Wonderful. And Bethany Seindel, would you mind sharing a little bit just how you've seen uh, FPU impact uh, people's lives? Sure, I'd be happy to. So we've been doing financial peace for a few years together, and during that time, it's I become very passionate about what it's done for people. I've watched people's business be, businesses being saved. I've watched marriages communicate better. I've watched young couples be in positions to start sharing for retirement now instead of when Jeff and I started later on. You know, being out of debt is significantly makes a difference in your life. Can you imagine if God's people were all debt free, what we could do as a people to help? 
you, you, she asked that question when we Zoomed last week, and just it, 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 it is an amazing thing to think about. With all of that said, we have some pretty exciting news today. Uh, Groton Bible Chapel has invested in a site-wide, church-wide license for Ramsey Plus. And what that means is that every member of our church, every household will have free access to all of the Ramsey Solution material. And so you go to our website, you go to resources, and you click Ramsey Plus, and you can, get your, you, you can go straight through and you can activate stuff there, but it gives you free access to the Every Dollar Budgeting app, the premium one, which if you already use, it'll tack a year on free to what you already have. The five classes that they offer, including FPU and the Legacy course for those who are already retired, and also a Baby Step app to walk people through. And the whole point here is that we live in difficult times, people are struggling, and we wanna provide all the resources we can um, because stewardship is a biblical issue, it's not just a me issue. And so we encourage you, go to the website, click resources, you, it, is, it is free, and then on February 28th, Curtis and Bethany uh, will be launching a FPU class so that you can go on the journey with other people because uh, we do believe in the power of community when people are going through this. And so anyway, we're excited for that news and we're excited for the lives that are gonna be impacted by this. If you see them around, feel free to stop and ask questions. But again, website, resources, click Ramsey Plus, and we're excited to go from there. With that, church family, take a, a 30 seconds, send a text, a high five, a, a wave. Be careful, I don't wanna get in trouble up here. And we'll be back in 30 seconds. My soul is full of troubles. I felt those words of the psalmist from Psalm 88 this week. On my own behalf, on behalf of many of you, on behalf of our country, the psalmist in Psalm 88 goes on to lament a variety of circumstances. I encourage you to check that psalm out. But one of the things that's notable is that He's, it's complex, and, and I think the reason that we approach church today, we approach God's word today with our hearts being troubled is much more complex than we pretend. The issues are not simple. And so I wrestled a lot this week, as I know you have. I wrestled on your behalf in some ways. I came in Wednesday morning and uh, you know, I'd had an opportunity, with the staff being gone over Christmas week, I had an opportunity to really kind of work ahead. And I had this sermon pretty much in the can. It's, we're talking about the triumphal entry today, quote-unquote easy passage. Wednesday, I spent about six and a half hours laboring over an outline that was done, not really knowing why, and ended up in a completely different place. I think it was uh, probably approaching five o'clock and Megan Hartley, our children's ministry director, knocked on my office door, which had been shut the entire day. And so you gotta turn on the TV. 
in the next 24 hours, I understood a little bit more of why I wrestled so much. The psalmist says, my soul is full of troubles, or some versions say, I've had trouble enough. It says, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. So I've asked myself, and I'm sure you're asking these questions, where do I go? Where do we go as a people from here? How do we respond to the events, not only of this last week, but let's be honest, the last year? How do we respond as a church? How do we respond as Americans who love our country despite its flaws and failures? I submit to you this morning, we go to the word of God. We run and we cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not just cliche. It is where we are called to go. It is where we find resolution. And we talked this morning about this idea of an epic arrival as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. In some ways, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is very counter what, a, what a, a victor's entry into the city should look like. And so it seems stripped down almost. In other ways, certainly as we understand it, this side of the cross, it is the most epic arrival in human history. And so that's the tone of which uh, I've approached our passage uh, this morning. I'm gonna lead us in yet another prayer as we endeavor to look at God's word. Lord God, uh, we come before you this morning conflicted, uh, somewhat confused, even as Brandon prayed, just that great prayer reminding us that you are not a God of confusion. And so, Lord, we approach your word this morning, God, first of all, humbly, with hearts softened to hear what you want us to hear today. Lord, would you move in us as we seek you in your word? We thank you for your word. Thank you that we can retreat there. We can cling to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us in spite of the darkness and the angst that's in our own hearts. And in fact, that's what we really want to bring to you to address this morning is is our own hearts and our own response because that's the only thing we can control this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We want to begin this morning with this idea of arrival. If you think about it through human story, down through human history, the, the idea of story, we love great entrances or dramatic entrances. Uh, if, you, if you consider movies and television, the storytelling of our time, how many movies or, or television shows could you think about where there's some kind of a dramatic entrance from the physical comedy of Kramer on Seinfeld to the armies cresting the hills in, in movies like Lord of the Rings? We could go on and on and on. Those of you that are Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean fans, the Jack Sparrow coming on to the dock with the theme music resounding. We love grand entrances because that's part of what's written into us. I think God is a God who loves to show off through a dramatic entrance who he is and what he's about to do. And oftentimes with nuance and subtlety and it's, it's powerful. But I wanna back up before we look at this passage this morning because we have not been in the Gospel of John since June. And so we're going back to this idea of God among us. And in, the, in June, the last week of May, the first two weeks of June, myself, 
Jason and Zach preached three messages on chapter 11 and into chapter 12. The first message was on the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The second message was on the plot that was going on sort of in in, in the background to execute Jesus, to crucify Jesus, to kill him. And then the third brought to us by Zach was of Mary's costly anointing, this intimate moment of worship of Jesus as she anointed him with this costly perfume. And what's amazing is that in the the big ideas from these three messages, you can get the entire theme and message of the Gospel of John and what he wants us to do with that theme. So in the first message, as we looked at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we said that we saw very clearly demonstrated the humanity of Jesus Christ. We saw him at the tomb of Lazarus weeping with this cry that was filled with not only grief but angst as he cried at the tomb of his friend. And we talked about how John wants us to understand the humanity of Christ, that Jesus comes alongside of us in our human experience and he, he can sympathize, he understands. Today, he understands. He knows what it is. Jesus was fully human. He knows what it is to walk in our shoes, as it were. But then he raises Lazarus from the dead. He brings him back to life, thereby not only demonstrating that he is fully God, that he is divine, but also his intention to bring new life through the cross and through the resurrection. In fact, through his actions and his teaching, Jesus, as Jason helped us understand in the the next message, is laying out a line in the sand. He's throwing down the gauntlet to those who are there, the Pharisees, the disciples, those who are witnesses, uh, uh, Lazarus' friends and family. He's drawing this line in the sand, and it's a line in the sand that extends all the way down through human history to today, as it were, that essentially says, I am God, I am the Messiah, I am the promised deliverer, will you have me or will you have me not? And we are forced to respond to who Jesus is, every one of us, both in his time and time to come. And then John paints this beautiful picture through Mary's demonstration of worship. As she comes to the feet of Jesus and she anoints him with costly perfume, she bathes or wipes his feet with her hair, this intimate, tender act of worship. And Zach reminded us that this picture is designed to show us that Jesus is worthy worthy of our utter devotion. So in these three messages, we see the theme of the Gospel of John that he talks about, he concludes in John chapter 20, verse 31. We see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That he is uniquely able to redeem us and that Jesus comes and and teaches very clearly that we must have him or not have him. But we must have him to have life, not just physically from the dead, but for all eternity. But we see the heart of John for us. When John says, these things are written that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. What kind of life? A life filled with the utter devotion of Mary through her act of worship. And so we see the theme, the heart of the Gospel of John and we're also brought from a narrative standpoint up to the edge of our passage for this morning. So we're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 12. Uh, For the sake of context this morning, we'll back up to verse 9, and I think you'll see why. John chapter 12, verse 9. John writes, 
And then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Can you believe that they intended to kill Lazarus because he was pulling followers away from themselves? And now we look at our passage for this morning. We're going to look at this in three chunks. The first chunk is verses uh, 12 and 13. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Well, we're going to look at at these three little sections this morning with four bullets. We're going to look at sort of the setup or the the context into which John describes and, and, and writes We're going to look at the problem and really a leadership problem, a conflict, a tension, both for the people here, but that I think we replicate in our time. Then we're going to look at the conclusion that John is driving us to see, and finally, how do we apply this to today? So the setup, the problem, the conclusion, and application. What's the setup here? The setup is palm branches and the cry for change, or we're calling it palms and proclamations. You see, the, the Jews have, have uh, come to Jerusalem as, as religious pilgrims to celebrate the Passover. So they're in Jerusalem, the text says, and they actually come out of the city as the rumor is growing about Jesus, and they greet Jesus outside of the city. And they begin to put palm branches in front of him. Now, palm branches are not affiliated with Passover. They're actually, in terms of Old Testament history, much more affiliated with the, the Feast of Tabernacles. But that's not what, what the reference is here. Really, the palm branches symbolically here come from the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, the 400 years in between. And through events like the Maccabean revolts and and uprisings against the Romans early on, uh, the, the Israelites began to adopt palm branches as a symbol of military victory, of conquest, and even nationalism, so much so that they printed them or minted them on their coins. But as a, in a twist of irony, when the Romans crush the various rebellions of the Israelites, of the, of the Jews, they too print palm branches on some of their coins. And so truly, palm branches are a symbol of nationalism and, and, and victory. In fact, what they're doing symbolically is laying out a welcome for Christ to come with this anticipation that he, will, he is this nationalistic leader who will redeem them and liberate them and finally set them free from the occupation of Roman rule. And so they cry out as he enters the city, as he comes to the edge of the city, Hosanna! Hosanna is simply a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that means to save now. Give victory now. Deliver us now. There is an immediacy to what they are expecting and maybe even projecting, we could say, onto Jesus and who they anticipate Jesus not only is but should be. They have designs on on Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they cry, a, a cry from Psalm 118 that is messianic in nature. And so they are welcoming him as the Messiah. But here's, here's the problem, here's the leadership tension that they bring to the table that we often make the same mistake. It's this, that they are longing for a leader of their own design. 
we too long for a leader of our own design. We have our own ideas and presuppositions about how we should be led. And there are seven billion of us on the planet in lots of subgroups. And so everybody has their idea, not only of who God should be as a leader, but what leadership should look like. And we long for a leader of our own design. And John, interestingly enough, through the event of Jesus' epic arrival into the city and the events and the welcoming, he confirms this Jesus' greeting at the entrance of the city, confirms him as king, but a different kind of king. A different kind of king. Jesus' greeting at the city confirms him as the promised king. Not the king of the design of the Jews, not the king of my design or my overlay, but the king that is promised throughout the scripture. So what's the obvious application question this week is have I made Jesus after my own design? Or have I received Jesus as he's promised in the scripture? I think in the West in particular, it's very easy for us to fall into that camp of making Jesus a God and a Savior and a Deliverer and a Messiah after my design, not as the God who is promised. A God who came to seek and to save the lost, a God who came to serve rather than to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there's something that's inferred in that that kind of brings us to the next point, and it's this. If uh, uh, this idea of have I received him as promised, well, that means I need to know what the promises about Jesus are. So that brings us to our next section, verses 14 and following. It says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, the disciples and those crying out, Hosanna and so forth, they pronounced this prophecy over Jesus. So what's the setup here? It's a donkey's cult and the genius of Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't come into town as he begins to proceed through the city on a war horse, as would be expected from a Roman conqueror or a Roman victor or a Roman deliverer who would come in on a war horse and who would come in with the spoils of war and the army behind and around him and perhaps leaders that he had conquers, conquered in, in, uh, in sort of on display ahead of him. No, Jesus comes on a donkey. And Jesus' action here is extremely deliberate. Jesus, it's fair to say, does this to fulfill that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king comes to you riding on the foal of a donkey. But he also does this to send a message to the Jewish pilgrims who've gathered at Jerusalem, to the Jewish authorities, to those watching. And it's this, that his program is a program of peace, of submission, and of sacrifice. It is intentional to the core, and Jesus is brilliant. He does not uh, deny or repudiate their cries that he is the king of Israel, but through his actions and his choices, without hardly saying anything, nothing that's recorded here, he demonstrates that the program that he brings is not what they are assuming or even what this event would intimate. You see, what John 
wants us to understand is that Jesus has indeed come as the Messiah to seek and to save and to bring salvation. But he comes to do that, again, not according to the people's design, not in the manner assumed, but he comes as the Prince of Peace. He comes as the Prince of Peace. Peace. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that's John's intention? Well, we can hear it in the words that he writes. John does one of these things that he does often in his gospel where he sort of stops the narrative and he says, let me give you the the sort of narrator's view from the top of what the disciples were thinking because he was one of them, right? He says this, he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. So John says, we didn't get it at the time. It wasn't until Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven and that the Holy Spirit came that we were able to put all this together and go, aha. Now, a little bit of a sidebar this morning relative to the gospel in your life. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, if you have believed and received Jesus Christ into your life for the forgiveness of your sins and the inheritance of eternal life that he promises, then the scripture teaches that the spirit of the living Christ lives and resides within you, in your spirit. And what that means definitively is that you know and understand the heart of Christ better than the disciples did chronologically at this particular time, even though they walked with him. That's what John's saying. We didn't get it at the time. In fact, there's a twist of irony here Uh, relative to the idea of knowing Jesus. Recognize here that the crowd knew him in the sense that they recognized that he was the Messiah, but their understanding and presuppositions about the Messiah was faulty. They didn't have the right idea. They did identify, recognize that he was the Messiah. But the disciples who walked with him and knew him intimately, they'd eaten with him and watched him teach and learned from him, seen him do miracles, They knew him in a a much more intimate sense, and yet they didn't recognize him as the Messiah in the same manner the crowd did. We stand on the other side of the history of the cross, and we know him. Well, what's the leadership problem here? It's what that John is sort of confessing in a mix of the crowd, and as we'll look at in a moment, the Pharisees and John. Ultimately, the leadership mistake is that we allow our ideal of leadership, that design of leadership, to supersede that of what Scripture says, both in terms of who Jesus is specifically and the type of leaders that we should be and should follow. We allow our ideal of leadership to supersede that of Scripture. And so if the greeting of Jesus confirms Jesus as the promised king, again, John and Jesus himself His procession confirms him as king, but a different kind of king. His procession confirms him as the peaceful king or the king who brings peace, namely to your heart and mind. He is peaceful, the peaceful king. So what's the application this morning? As we've alluded to in the idea that he has promised, the question is, do I know his word? Do I know his word? Am I committed to knowing his word that he would be the peace of my life? When, when I talked about this week in the sense of uh, my soul is full of troubles, where do we go? Let's be honest, in our humanity, our first place to retreat is often not the peace of Christ found through his word. 
It's all kinds of other places. Part of why we gather Sunday by Sunday, why we sing the songs of worship about him that we do is to remind ourselves to go to his word, to find him as my peace in the midst of trial. Well, that brings us to the last little section here in John chapter 12 in our section for this morning at least, and it says this, verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said one to another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Well, now we're looking at, we've looked at palms and proclamations. We looked at at, at the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Now we look at the people. The people. And as we consider the people this morning, what's the setup? Well, there's three, really four groups here. And the setup is the fickleness of the crowds and a growing concern for the Pharisees. Now, who are the groups of people? Number one, we know that the disciples are here, right? John is writing on their behalf. We know the Pharisees are here. We just read of them in the final verse. There's also this crowd. But the crowd, if you read the text, is really made up of two different groups. There are the Jewish pilgrims who are there in the city already. Uh, Some on the outskirts. Some had already made their way to the temple. They come out of the city and they greet Jesus and begin to proceed with him. But there's also the group that was with him in Bethany when he raised Lazarus from the dead, saw the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and is also going with him. And we see that in the text, that they they are the ones who continue to testify about him. So you have two crowds to intermingle. The first crowd, that of the gathered, if we could call them that, are ripe with, as we've already looked at, faulty messianic expectations. Faulty messianic expectation. They are ripe with it. The second crowd is ripe with this personal miraculous experience. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, and they're the ones that are testifying loudly. And and these crowds come together in this powder keg of sorts with their own, again, design, ideal, and agenda for what Jesus should do next. And if you think about it from their point of view, you have this crowd that has this great expectation, this other crowd that has seen this miracle. They want to overthrow the Romans. And if Jesus is a guy who can raise people from the dead... Think about that, what that would mean for a military encounter with Rome. And they begin to dream wildly as they talk together, as they shout their hosannas and so forth. In fact, when we ask the question, how on earth does a crowd that here is shouting hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just about a week later say, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar? It's because they're fickle. It's because they are receiving a God of their design, a Messiah and a deliverer of their design over and against what has been promised. It's because they have allowed this ideal to supersede what the scriptures actually say about Jesus. It brings us to our our third problem. We testify wrongly out of concern for our unique situation or circumstances. We see this in the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees make this pronouncement. They say, and I'm going to paraphrase here, sort of ad-lib, they go, ah, forget it. The whole world's gone after him. Now, it's a statement of hyperbole. It's really a pretty small percentage of the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and Perea that have gone after him at this point, but they're also unknowingly prophetic. Scripture says that he will draw all men to himself. John 3.16, he so loved the world. But you see both the crowd 
multifaceted crowd and the Pharisees, they testify about Jesus in terms of the impact it has on their circumstances. In the Pharisees' case, we know from verse 11 what their motives are, where their heart's at. The text tells us that they decided to kill Lazarus because he was the reason that many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Their issue is power and control. Power and control. In fact, it really is the issue for both, both groups. We testify wrongly out of our own unique situation and circumstances. And God has his own purposes often far more, always far more complex than we could ever understand. So the greeting of Jesus confirms him as the promised king. The procession of Jesus confirms him as the peaceful king. And even the unintended testimony of the Pharisees confirms him as a perpetual king. For all the world, for all time, he is Savior, he is Messiah, he is Deliverer, even to today. Amen? Amen. So what's our application this morning? How do we, how do we process this this morning? First, this is a two-parter. One, I want to ask you this morning, do you know his epic arrival in your own life? Do you understand this morning that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem with all the intent and genius of how he comes because he is single-mindedly on mission to redeem you this morning? This event historically took place in the first century, but it took place for all time, for all people, that Jesus would go to a Roman cross and would pay for your sin and mine by giving his life as a ransom for many, raising from the dead in the power of God, giving us eternal life as we trust in him. Jesus has done this for you. And as we think about these leadership mistakes, if you will, or these, these assumptions that we make, I was thinking about them personally as I walked through this last week, and I began to realize something. Who is the God of my own design that I project onto what I want God to do on my behalf? Who is, who is the God of, of my ideal that supersedes what the Scripture says? I am that God. I am the one that I put on the throne. And if our last question this morning is, who do I elevate to the place where only he belongs? The answer is me. The issue begins in our hearts. It begins in my heart. It begins in your heart. It begins first with believing, receiving what Jesus has done on your behalf. His arrival in Jerusalem was for me. It was for you. But then it begins with admitting our ideals, our presumptions, and laying those at his feet as well. So if we ask the question, what do I do with this? If I'm honest with myself, we can go to Paul and read these words where he says this. He says, but now at the end of Romans chapter three. But now, remember that the word Hosanna means save now, rescue now, give victory now. Paul says, but now a righteousness apart from the law has appeared. It is a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. 
And Jesus is the leader we long for. He is the leader we long for as we take ourselves off the throne. And that is what we need to cling to this morning as human beings, as Americans who love our country, as GBCers who desire to be a light and a beacon for the gospel in our area. In this great benedictory promise or prayer that Paul declares to Timothy, he says this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you indeed use your word this morning in our lives to reorient our hearts to make us lamenters of our own sin, to make us repentant, not to wallow in our unworthiness, but to raise your name and exalt your name for your worthiness. We think of that image of Mary, prostrate, giving of herself in a costly way to worship you, the King, eternal, immortal, the only God. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.